Our Bible reading this morning comes from the first from First Peter chapter four, the verses seven to eleven. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. As good stewards, sorry, as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be for the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We just assume your sonorous voice will carry. You don't need a microphone, Lorenz. What is your dream for what this church community uh, should be known for? What do we actually want for ourselves as a church? If we, you know, if we could make a name for ourselves, what would it be for? Sometimes churches define themselves primarily by what they are not, you know. Uh, this is often the case where people have left a church or they planted a church um, because uh, they were disgruntled or unhappy with how things were. You know, sometimes the core identity of a church is primarily that they are not the last thing that they came from. Uh, I guess one of the biggest uh, ex- uh, sort of explosions of that in, the, in Christianity in the last couple of decades has been the growth of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. So people have defined themselves by not being sort of the, the dead, um, uh, I guess, mind-focused church. There, there needs to be a place where the Holy Spirit can be active. And so, so we establish a whole new movement because we're not that, we're this. So this can happen even within denominations too, where there are practical differences in how uh, a church organises worship or how others organise their worship services. And while we might share the same theological understanding, our practice is different because we don't want to be that. You know, we can be known for a church as being the church that, that isn't, uh, isn't like the others. Is that what we want, you know, to be known for? I really hope that's not it. Um, some churches define themselves by what they do differently, you know. It's, it's their innovation that brings people and that stands out as their identity. Again, the classic example is the Hillsong Church. Now, I know there's things about that we're thinking about right now as a global community, but let's just ignore that for the moment. The truth of the matter is Hillsong was known for their innovation in worship music. Um, you know, they moved from the hymn style of music and in, uh, you know, their main innovation was that they popularised the sort of the pop worship song, if you like, the modern worship song. That's what they became known for, that's what motivated them uh, and that's why people came to them, actually, because they were so different. Is this what we want to be known for as a church, for our innovation? In the reformed spectrum, we do some pretty radical things at Wonga Park. Um, 
Things like our Selah evenings, our prayer and reflective services, they don't exist in any of the other Reformed churches around. Things like our discussion and reflection questions after the service uh, is a Wonka Park innovation. Um, now, a number of other churches have since adopted this, but, you know, we were the first. Um, <laughs> adopting a stance of welcoming children to the Lord's Supper table. Our church was the first in the denomination to, uh, to adopt the practice, you know. Is this what we want to be known for as the innovating church? I really don't think that's it either, right? Sometimes churches define themselves by their cultural groupings. Uh, we have in Victoria a Christian Reformed Church that is a Chinese Reformed Church and they have nothing more or less to do uh, with the, well, for, historically they've had nothing to do with the rest of the denomination. We shared a theology, we met at our classist level uh, and basically that was it because they are a Chinese church. And there are many of these culturally grouped churches in Victoria. Um, when the Reformed churches started in Australia, they were from Dutch migrants. And so all of our churches were primarily Dutch-speaking churches. Um, Wonga Park has a rich history of welcoming migrant families into our church, many of whom, myself included, are from South African background. Is that what we want to be known for? Do we want to be the Dutch-slash-South African-slash-Sri Lankan mix with a few Aussies mixed in? Is that what we want to be known for? Do we want to be a culturally defined church? Well, no, we don't. Some churches are defined by their success, their brand. It's enough to draw people to them. If you know the church leadership world at all, you know that often people, uh, the people who get to write the books, who get access to the stages, you know, at conferences and things, are those that have made it in the Christian sphere. They are the people who grew their church from a small ragtag band of, you know, a small group to a 5,000 people in the space of a few years. And, um, you know, as you will be aware, as a church, we've been, we've been working and setting our culture to invite people to church, to pray for people that God brings along our path so that God would move their hearts and we can share the gospel with them. We have these Invite a Friend Sundays, that's our strategy. We've, you know, it'll form the major part of how we do church going forward as we seek to be obedient to God um, you know, when He told us to go and make disciples. That's what we want to do. And so we're doing that and that's wonderful and I look forward to seeing the fruit that God will bring for that. Um, and why that is happening, uh, you know, why it's been shaping our church community We've been spending time training up growth group leaders so that people are cared for well and so on. But is it only so that we can be successful? Do we do all those things so that we can make a name for ourselves that the Wonga Park brand can succeed? Is that what we're after, to make a name for ourselves? Do we want to be known as the centre of reformed Christianity in Melbourne where our mere reputation is enough to bring people in? Are we defined by our success? Well, I really hope that that's not our dream either. Our motivation, our dream, should be defined by what God gives us in Scripture, right? We are a Bible-based church and that is what we want to be, a, a place that is defined by what God says. So, what should our motivation for being good at churching be? 
Well, 1 Peter 4 verse 7 actually gives us the answer. He says there, Peter is writing here to the church, and he says in verse 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. The motivation for doing well as a church is that the end of all things is near. This is our motivation. We want to be an excellent church, we want to do well at doing church things because the end of all things is near. Now, we need to put our brains on for a moment and think about what Peter means when he says this because he wrote those words just less than 2,000 years ago and we're reading these words, you know, 2,000 years later and it really doesn't seem that much as if the end of all things was all that particularly near, does it? So when Peter uses the phrase, the end of all things is near, we have to understand this in the context of the sort of Middle Eastern mindset that he was talking about. We, we tend to think very chronologically, you know, we've been trained to read our history books in order. We don't read the end and then the middle and then the start. We do things in order. And so when he talks about um, being, the end of all things being near, he, he's not talking about, you know, next year or the year after Jesus is going to appear because uh, the Bible makes it very clear that no one knows when Jesus will come back. Only God knows. What he's talking about is that if you split the, uh, the world's you know, history into eras, there are, there are different eras. There is sort of the era when Adam and Eve lived and then there's the era of the Old Testament and we are now, the, and then there's the era when Jesus was alive on earth and we're now in the final era of this world. We are in the last days. The end of all things is coming soon. So in the scope of all of human history, we're in this last little part before Jesus comes back. And so we're in the last days, that's what he's trying to say. Now the end of all things is, um, is what has motivated the church to spread the gospel and to share Jesus with those around us from the very beginning. Uh, you know, for example, in Acts chapter 2, if you read with me from verse 17, uh, Luke writes there, <coughs> And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see vis visions and your old men will dream dreams. And I will pour out my spirit even on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. And I will display wonders in heaven and signs on earth, uh, uh, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of our Lord." And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there's this idea that we are in this last days where, where Jesus has poured out His Spirit on us. We have received the Holy Spirit and we're living in this time until such a time that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what it means to be living in the last days. And so our motivation at being a church is because we are living in the last days. And because we're living in the last days, there is a sense of urgency that we need to grapple with. Friends, you and I actually only have a limited amount of time left before the world will end. And so because we're in the last days, we kind of have to get up off the couch and, and get on with the job that Jesus gave us to do because our master can return at any moment. His return will be unexpected, it will be surprising, uh, it will come when we least expect it. And so because of that, we, 
the church has this radical end-time work ethic that prioritizes the things that Jesus prioritized. We preach the gospel, we, we proclaim the good news of God's kingdom breaking in the world because there's not that much time left. Now that might be another 2,000 years, we don't know, but we are in this last day. And so the reason we as a church have been focused on discipleship, on outreach and why we've structured our church calendar around, you know, invite a friend Sundays and we put in place all kinds of social events and church camps and everything else is because Jesus is coming back soon and we need to prepare for that. We need to get on with the show of being a biblically motivated church, a church who does church things because our master is coming back soon. And that then has implications for how we do things and what we do. Now, the very first thing that Peter says, you know, the end of all days is, is, uh, of all things is near. Therefore, he says, be alert and be sober-minded for prayer. Now, you know what it means to be alert. It's to be on the lookout, to watch out for the opportunities that God is giving you. Why is it that God has put the people in your life who are in your life? Is it not to give you the opportunity to show them what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus? Why have you found yourself in the particular work environment that you have found yourself in? Is it not just that God is placing his agents where he needs them to be? Why do we go to the schools we go to or have the hobbies we have, if not to be God's agents in those places? And so we have opportunities around us, but we need to be alert to them. We have these opportunities that God provides for us every day as his servants. But not only are we to be on the lookout, we are to be sober-minded, he says. We need to think clearly, in other words. Now, last week we, we looked at how um, the state of our hearts, right? We, we looked at how our hearts are desperately crooked and wicked and therefore we need God to intervene with His Holy Spirit uh, because we would just reject Jesus if He wasn't working in our own hearts. Now, to be sober-minded is to understand that that is the state of what it means to be a human. So we shouldn't be all that surprising when other people end up being, frankly, disappointing. To be sober-minded in the end times means to understand that the, the biggest issue any one of us has is not, you know, housing affordability or um, a lack of education or whatever other reason our world presents to us. The issue we have is that we have broken hearts that need to be fixed by God. And because we understand that, because we are sober-minded about that, Peter says we can pray rightly. So we are to be alert and sober-minded for prayer. This alertness, this right thinking about opportunities that God gives us to serve and, and the state of the heart of people around us is so that we can pray informed prayer. Isn't that interesting? The reason we can effectively pray for people to come to know the Lord is because we have a sober understanding of their heart's condition. We can't save anyone, only God can do that. But we can pray effectively if we see the opportunity and we are alert and sober-minded about it. And so that's kind of what this whole, um, you know, 
praying and inviting strategy as a church is all about because we want people to succeed you know we want to actually be obedient to god's call uh, but we are praying for people because we are alert and we are sober-minded about what god has said to us now this end time priority this the end of all things is near also has implications for how we do church how our community is structured it's all well and good to be alert to be sober-minded to pray rightly but we actually need to be a community that you know is attractive to people where they can see what it means to be god's people and so peter says there are three things that characterize a church community that has this end time ethic going for it the right motivation is that the end time is near and then how do we structure our community as a result well three things love hospitality and service so we're going to spend some time looking at each of these in turn a church is a place that is to be characterized by love for one another hospitality and sacrificial service for one another so love verse 8 above all maintain constant love for one another since love covers over a multitude of sin now friends you know that this is a consistent command all throughout scripture love one another is to characterize our community as believers all throughout the new testament this is a command that jesus or the apostles or someone gives us 1 corinthians 13 chapter about love galatians 5 talks about how love is a fruit of the spirit 1 John 4 verse 7 and 8 talks about how, uh, you know, we love one another as Jesus loves us. Ephesians 4 verse 2 to 3 and so on. There's many passages where that talks about love. But perhaps the most well-known is Jesus' own command to us, his people, in John chapter 13. Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you you're also to love one another because by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another there is something about the radical love that christians have for each other that sets them apart from the rest of the world how does love work in the rest of the world i think most of the time love works in there's a romantic attraction there's chemistry if you like um, maybe it's friends that love one another but at the end of the day you get something out of the relationship right part of the reason we have such high rates of divorce is because people fall out of love with one another i don't love you anymore and so now i'm moving on to the next person but that's not the kind of christian love that is to characterize the church this love ca covers over a multitude of sin this love is a sacrificial love this love is a love that accepts people in all their foibles because we are sober-minded we understand that frankly we are all pretty disappointing people it is a love that is so attractive that other people see that and go there is something different about these people and i want to be a part of that It requires us to be sober-minded about the people who we join together with the church, our brothers and sisters. On the one hand, we can think of, of you know, each other as too good. 
You know, we see the smiles on the Sunday morning as we come into church. The mask is very much in place. And that family with the small children who somehow always seem to have them dressed and ready on time and we're always late and trying to, you know, one shoe missing, drag them into the church. Or the, or the super Christian whose faith journey just stuns you every time you hear about, the, about it and you hear them talk. And their capacity to serve and give you look at that and you think, that's just magnificent, I could never be that. And so we can have this idea that we could never be like those kinds of people. But that builds a barrier in the community, doesn't it? We can't have anything in common with those super-Christian people. They're so perfect, how can you relate to that? To be sober-minded about those types of wonderful people is to remember that they're just a bunch of sinners. People who constantly walk away from God, just like we do. And so to love our church members means letting our... And so if you're one of those people who is just wonderful, part of loving the other person is to let down the guard and to let people see your imperfection. Because actually, if you are truly a believer, you know, we're all broken. We, we have to pretend, to stop pretending that we are perfect. But on the other hand, we can also think of our brothers and sisters as too bad. We can overemphasize their brokenness in our minds and, you know, forget about our own brokenness at the same time. You see, we're very natural at doing that because it allows us to look down on people because they don't have their lives as together as we do. And then for whatever reason, you know, they don't perform the way we think Christians should, should perform. And when we do that, we are underestimating our own brokenness. We forget that no matter how far someone has fallen, it is only by God's grace that we are not in that position. And when we realize that every person just has different life experiences and they come from a different background, it changes the way we see them. When we look at people through a sober mind's eye, understanding that we are no better but for God's grace, it allows us to develop compassion and it helps us to start seeing them through God's eyes as his beloved children. And that is the path to loving one another. And so if we are to love one another as a church community, we have to have this sober mind that forgives all kinds of wrongdoing simply because we know that we are all in the same boat, saved by grace through faith by Jesus. We cannot keep each other at arm's length, friends, because we are to love one another. Second thing we are to do is to be hospitable, to show hospitality. I find this verse so encouraging. 1 Peter 4 verse 9, it says, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. The, um, the, the Greek is without grumbling. Yes, welcome to my house. Enjoy my food. What is hospitality? What does it mean to practice hospitality? Now, in essence, hospitality is simply making your home a space that others can enter into and feel welcome. There's this wonderful quote, and I think the author of it, it's a bit hard to find who wrote it, um, uh, but I think it's the, Arch, um, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury who served during the 70s and 80s, 
Donald Kogan, and he said, or the quote at least is, that hospitality is making your guest feel welcome, even, uh, sorry, hospitality is making your guests feel like they are at home, even when you wish they were. And I just think that's wonderful, isn't it? Friends, if we are a family that is united by Christ's blood and love for one another, um, then when we gather together like this, we have an obligation to show hospitality to one another, both at home and also at church. Now, this is a challenge for us, isn't it? We live in a highly individualised society. But Peter understood this already back then in a place that was a very communal society. That's why he says, show hospitality, but do so without grumbling. It was a challenge back then, it's a challenge now. And it costs us something. It costs us time, it costs us a sense of safety perhaps, a sense of sanctuary. Our homes are these places, these bastions that keep us safe, these fortresses that block out the world, the safe spaces where we can let our hair down and be ourselves. And we, we think, don't we, that offering hospitality to someone is, is making our house look nice for the people when they come over. But that's not it. That's just taking the mask we put on when we see them and putting it on our house as well. That's why it's so stressful when people come over. That's not hospitality. True hospitality is, is not putting on a show when someone comes to your house. It's in, about inviting others to share the space when you are really yourself. Maskless, so they can see who you are. It may involve cooking and cleaning, but the point is rather to just let people in to your space. And I understand that for many of us it is difficult because we like to feel safe. And it's particularly difficult if you've invited someone into your home and you've had a bad experience about it. But this is not a suggestion, friends. If we are going to be a family, a church community, this is a command. We only have a certain amount of time left, therefore show hospitality. So it, it extends into, the, uh, so into our homes, but also here in the place we share as a family here. What's the best way to love a stranger in this place, to show hospitality to one another in the church? I think there's lots of different ways. One, you could pray about where to sit when you come through the door. When you get here, maybe sit next to someone new. Help them to feel at home. Consider what we do during church. What if someone doesn't have a Bible, you know, sit next to them, help them out. What if there's a stranger during our discussion time, make sure that it's, you know, take on the responsibility to invite them into that. It extends to what we do after church. Make a beeline for the person you don't know, find out about them, listen to their story. It is all of our responsibility to open up our home here at church and to invite them in. Consider the language we speak. You know, we are not a culturally defined church. We are a biblical church. We are motivated by the fact that Jesus is coming back soon and so we need to show love to other people by making sure the language we speak is understandable by everyone. Most of the people I visit that are new as, as we talk, I often say, look, this is a church where we speak English. 
even though I'm fluent in Afrikaans, I'm going to speak to you English here, because it's a way of showing hospitality to the stranger. It's very easy to go to the coffee shop. There you can do what you want. But here, this is a place of hospitality. Invite someone over for after church. When last did you invite your brother and sister over for lunch after church, for coffee afterwards? Maybe never? It's time. Show hospitality and do so without grumbling. Finally, is service. And I don't want to go into detail about that. We've talked about this a number of times recently. Um, Peter talks about how a, a Christian community is a place that serves with the gifts that God has given them. So God has given the church all kinds of different gifts to build it up. If you, know, if you have speaking gifts, then use those. If you have doing gifts, then use those. Whatever gifts God has given you, they are to be used to serve the church. So community of love is not something that you can actually be a passive member of. A church family contributes to the life of the community through its service to that community. So maybe there's a challenge here to consider where God is calling you to serve today. And that's all I have to say about service. But I think it's worthwhile just recapping what we've talked about. You know, we started this morning talking about what is our dream for the church? What do we want to be known for? What are we motivated by? And we saw that if we answer this question biblically, we need to understand our motivation. And the motivation Peter gives us in this passage is that we are in the last days. The end of all things is near. Therefore, we have a job to do. Jesus could come at any minute and so we need to get on with the job of making disciples. But to do that, we have to have the right environment to invite people into. What is the right environment? It's a place where the church behaves like a family, loves one another no matter what, covers over a multitude of sins and so on, in a way that really cares for other people. It is a place that shows hospitality, both in our homes and what we do here at church, and our church community is a space that, uh, that uses the gifts that God has given us to serve Him in the context of this community. Now, friends, imagine what would happen if we all did that 100%. If we did that 100%, the consequence of that would be what Peter finishes his passage with. Do all things for the glory of God. God would be glorified. And that's what we're here for, to glorify Him. So now we can answer the question, what is my dream for the church? For me, it is that this is a place of love, a community, a family community of love, a place of hospitality and a place of service, driven by the fact that our Lord has given us a job to do in the end times. And we do it not for our own glory, not for our brand, not for a sense of success or innovation or any of those things, but for His glory and for His name's sake. That would be success. So will you join me as we pursue that? Hmm? Will you join me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again that, you know, you give us so many really helpful and um, practical ways to, to serve you. 
Lord, we are reminded that we have been saved out of a death, uh, eternal death, through, your, through the blood of, of Jesus Christ, who, um, who bled for us, who stood in our place. And through that, for all who believe, Lord, you have redeemed us, you've called us into a new family of, of people who we would never even have met had it not been for what you've done for us. So we want to thank you for that. What a gift our church family is. I pray that you will help us to grow in love for one another. Not that we don't already do that, but may it be that we love one another as you have loved us. Sacrificially, even being willing to lay down your life for us. May that be us. Help us to deeply show hospitality to one another and also the stranger that comes. That this be a place of home, not just a building we come to on a Sunday. And help us to serve one another as we serve you. Lord, we want to do this not because we want to make a name for ourselves, we want to um, you know, set our brand out there or do things and be known for the success of this congregation. No. We want to do that for your glory. Help us to keep our eyes always on the fact that the end time is near and that you are coming soon. And help us to serve out of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.